Before we open God's word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, who is so gracious to us in mercy, who provides for all of our needs, who has sent thy Son, and now the Spirit of the living God to be among us. We want to pray for thy, thy manifest presence to be near. We know thou art everywhere, Heavenly Father, but we pray that thou wouldst be feelingly near to us now, that thou wouldst speak to the hearts of those that are gathered here. I do not have words to speak, except they come from thee. If it is but man's words, it is time wasted. But if it is the words of eternal life, then the benefit of this time that we spend together will indeed be eternal. Be with us now and be with those that could not gather with us for whatever reason, Heavenly Father. Bless them even as we anticipate a blessing from thee. In Jesus' name, amen. For this afternoon's meditation, I'd like us to turn to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'd like to preface this reading just with the, the comment that um, I've been asked to have the morning message next weekend in Ancaster at the Instrumental Praise Weekend, and the theme of the weekend is, is about the grace of God, the boundless grace of God. So this theme has been in my head um, for the last little while I've been thinking about it, and so I'd like to read the first 10 verses. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus." For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I'd like to conclude with the tenth verse. I haven't fully formed my thoughts on this chapter, but there are some things from this 
uh, selection of verses that I have been pondering on and, and with the Lord's help, I'd like to discuss with you this afternoon. You'll notice, first of all, that the Apostle Paul says, you hath he quickened. Now that's Old English. Uh, there's the expression the quick and the dead, which simply means the alive and the dead. Quickened here means made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if you would remember back to the first few chapters of the Bible, you'll of course remember what happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam and Eve that in the day that they would touch that tree, they would surely die. The question is, what sort of death did they experience? It was obviously not physical death. Not immediately. Remember, God said, in the day thou, thou touchest, thou shalt surely die. So the death, though death did come to them, was not an immediate one. But what did happen was that part of the soul of man that responds to the Spirit of God died in them that day. Sin causes separation. And with disobedience, there was an immediate separation from their Heavenly Father. God walked in the cool of the garden that evening and said, and I believe with sorrow in his heart, Adam, where art thou? It was not that God did not know where Adam was. That would be to deny his very nature. The point was that Adam no longer knew where he was. There was something now that was irreparable from Adam's side. There was a, a division, a death, as death separates us from our loved ones. You know, we've had some funerals the last number of, of months. And when we look at the body that's in the casket, there's a sense almost that that person is no longer really there. We knew them in life. And in death, this is just some faint shadow of who they were, even though the features are still the same. And so death is a separation, and so it was also between Adam and God. There was a separation. But there was also a promise that the day would come when the prophecy would be fulfilled that the seed of the woman, notice that, not the seed of the man, the seed of the woman would one day bruise the head, crush the head of the serpent. And all of that was to restore life where now there was death. We were indeed all at one time dead in trespasses and sins. There was a period of time in our life where we were free from the condemnation of God. Romans says, sin revived and I died. 
There came a point where we became conscious of sin and instead of choosing what was right and good, we followed our fallen nature and instead chose evil and so brought death upon us. But he quickened us. I don't intend to spend a whole lot of time now talking about Christ's atoning work, but rather on the effect of it. And the Apostle Paul contrasts now the former life and the new life. And I strongly disagree with those who would interpret Romans, O wretched man that I am, the passage in Romans 7, with the Christian life. I believe it only applies to the unregenerate soul because of what Paul says here very clearly in the second chapter of Ephesians, what we have been called to. So Paul talks now about the former life, and here he's very clear, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. There's another old English word, but a good one, course. We, we think of... Um, Perhaps school, when we use that word now, talk about courses, a course of study, or I'm taking certain courses, that's more of a modern usage. But that simply means a, a, a channel, a channel of information. I'm, 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 I'm going down that, that, that path of study. We also use it in words like water course when we talk about a river, right? It's a, it's a, it's a path. And if you think about it in that light, I think we can all certainly identify you walked according to the course of this world with the flow of the world. Have you ever tried swimming against a river? Or against a current? Against a riptide, perhaps, in the ocean? It's very difficult. I remember once I was with some young men from Windsor Church, some of my cousins and friends, and a good friend of mine was swimming in the ocean. He got caught in a riptide pulled him away from shore, and he fought it. He was a strong swimmer. He fought that riptide to try to come back into shore. And it's funny, because I, I forgot about this event, but he reminded me of it some decade or more later. Apparently, I shouted to him from the shore, don't fight it. Go with the flow. Let the, let the, let the riptide take you out. And once it's expended its power, then swim to the side and come around. And he did that, and he got to shore. What I didn't realize at the time, we were young guys, and got to shore, everything's fine, things kept on going. But one of the things that he shared is how he was starting to panic when he realized he didn't have enough power to fight the course of water that was pulling him out. He had to go with the flow. And so it was with us. And to greater or lesser degrees, of course, in a river, there's very varying degrees of current, but it all goes one direction. And perhaps some of you spent more time along the edges where the current wasn't so swift, and maybe others went right in the middle of it and did everything the rest of the world was doing. I don't know. But we all went according to that course, according to the flow. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That great flow of rebellion that started from the garden that we were all part of. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I certainly can identify with these words. My conversation to be conversant with something is to understand and be involved in it. It can mean lifestyle. It was defined by these things. The lusts of the flesh and the desires of the mind. The things that I was interested in, that I pursued, the desires of my mind, that's what I lived for. But I also found in my body lusts and desires and, and reactions to things that were almost independent of my mind. And these things defined me. Talks about the children of wrath. Can mean, I think, the children slated for wrath, for punishment by God. But you could take it another way and talk about the temper that many of us had as unconverted people. And the, the, the quickness with which we turn when we were crossed or when someone did something to hurt us or offend us. And it's interesting to see here, Paul does not dwell on that former life for very long. He spends only two verses here talking about it. I think there's enough there for us to relate to. But then he says something interesting. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. And as I was thinking about those words, mercy, grace, they seem almost interchangeable, but are they really? I heard a good definition that I'd like to share with you, and it, at least in my mind, it seems to make sense. Both mercy and grace flow out of the character of God. They flow out of his goodness. He is, in essence, good. He defines what is good, for that is what he is. It's not a part of him necessarily, as it is his character. And both flow out of that goodness. Mercy is God's goodness acting on human guilt. Grace is God's goodness acting on human demerit. And the more I turn that over in my head, the more that made sense. Because we have need of both. We have need of both mercy and grace. Why? Because we know who we are. We know what we are. I've said it before, I think even from this pulpit, that there is one central experiential truth that I found that made the Bible ring true more than any other book that I, that I came across. And it's simply this. On one hand, I could look at and admire the noble, the good, and the righteous. I could see the benefit in them. I could see the beauty in them. I could see the glory of them. The good, the righteous, and the virtuous. But on the other hand, I found myself doing the vile and the despicable and the base. I found nothing else in all of my reading 
in all of my experience that could adequately explain this fact. That on one hand, I looked at what was good and right and wonderful. I thought, this is, this is good. This is worth pursuing. This is right. And yet I found myself wholly unable to do them. That truth made scripture ring true. It was the only thing that described why I found these two warring contradictions, I guess, within me. God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Mercy is mentioned many, many times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's mentioned four times as many in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And we might find that a little bit odd. Why, why that? But grace is mentioned three times more in the New than in the Old. Under the Old Covenant, the immediate need was for God's mercy, a recognition that we needed the mercy of God, that we were imperfect, that the law was righteous, holy, just, good, but essentially unlivable. And so the only answer to a perfect, right, and just standard that could not be attained was we needed mercy. We needed something to salve our conscience that would tell us that a God who had such a high standard still could love us in some way. How else could we have dealt with guilt? And so the pattern of sacrifices were given. But we read in Hebrews that that pattern, those offerings, week by week, month by month, year by year, could not make the ones who offered it perfect. That it was only for a salving of their, of their conscience to take away the sting of the recognition that we were continually falling short of a holy and righteous God. But that was not the state that we were to continue to exist in. God only allowed man to remain in that state long enough to realize that there was no possible avenue on the, from, the, from the part of man that could bring him back to God. He went as far as picking out the patriarchs and then and working with a nation, giving them his law, setting up his temple with signs and wonders. What must it have been like to see that, that, that bright cloud that followed or that led the children of Israel in the wilderness? To go out, perhaps, you know, I have small children, they like to see things. Can you imagine taking your small child out perhaps in the nighttime when they wake up and when they're fussing, and you, you, you walk out with them between the tents and look down that long corridor between the tents and say, you see that? You see that glowing thing in the sky that's sitting right in the center of our camp over the tabernacle? And perhaps the question would be, well, what is that, Mommy, or what is that, Daddy? That's God. That's God. He's here with us. He loves us. That's why he brought us out of Egypt. And so we need that guilt to be taken care of. 
But that's not enough. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. It's not enough to just take care of the guilt of sin. There's the hymn that talks about the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power of, of sin. It's guilt and power. You, my friend, can be redeemed from both. Not just a temporary taking away of guilt. I remember that cycle very well as a young person. The crushing guilt that came with sin. The resolve to do better next time. The desire to go to God's house to hear his word, to sing his praises. To somehow be made right again with God. And then repeating that cycle all over again. I remember crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, dead in trespasses and sins? But thank God for his grace. His grace, the double cure. By grace, ye are saved. And it says even more clearly later on, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Someone once said, learning that I was a sinner was the most liberating truth I ever experienced. Because until then I'd be trying awful hard. When you realize that you are indeed dead in trespasses and sins. You couldn't pull yourself up any more than a dead person could raise himself up out of the, the coffin in which they've been placed. You are unable. That does not mean you are unresponsive, but unable, powerless over that, the effects of that disobedience. That's why it says, and hath raised us up together. Together. Does that mean together us? No. Together with Christ. There are many who have meditated on the atonement of Christ. What actually happened in that horrible, awful transaction on Calvary? When the Son of God and the Son of Man was lifted up between heaven and earth and made to die for the sins of the world. And far better scholars than me have spent lifetimes trying to unpuzzle what happened at Calvary. I have the benefit of not being an intellectual, so I can simply say, I leave that to God. To me, that seems like something that is just hidden in the counsel of his will. That sacrifice happened in blood and shaking and darkness with signs and wonders. There were strange things in Jerusalem that day. But three days later, at the dawning of the day, the sun rose and the light 
of the, of, of the, of the earthly son shone into an empty tomb that was as plain as the day. And the resurrection shows me that the price that was paid on Calvary was sufficient. It was enough. It was enough for me. The empty tomb was not there for Christ. Christ could walk through walls in his glorified state. The doors being shut, he appeared among them. So why was the stone rolled away? That we could see in, not that he could come out. That we could see in. That we could understand that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient. That as he was raised again to life, so can we be. That's it. That's God's answer to us. As the tomb is empty and the message of the cross spread, so we too can find new life in him. Hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We needed both his mercy and his grace. God gave both. Does that mean that God's grace was not operating in the Old Testament? No, of course not. No one has ever been preserved for any length of time except by the grace of God. It was God's grace that kept him from blotting out the human race when they sinned. Right at the very beginning. It was God's grace that, that caused him to delay before sending that flood, that awful flood to cover the world. It was the grace of God also that saw to it that Noah and his family was put on that ark. It was the grace of God that preserved the life of Moses. It was the grace of God that, that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. That suffered with them over many episodes of disobedience. Always, always working right from the very beginning. God's grace is a marvelous thing. But for those conscious of God, we need his mercy. We realize we need his mercy. So what is that? To my mind, we were talking about this a little bit at OMAC yesterday at, after, after the, the dinner. How this all works, Wesley called it prevenient grace and, and others have used different terms. I don't know the theology of all of this, but I understand the scripture when it says that he gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. So God is looking. As I said, his grace is already there. It's already operating. It, it forestalls his, his hand of judgment. It's already operating. But when he finds a heart that understands his need for mercy, for mercy from a righteous God, that's the humility that God's looking for. That's the ground in which His grace can begin a, a regenerating work. And it says here, 
sorry, verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith. As I said, the grace of God has already been working. But faith is the response of the humble heart to God's grace. And faith is always accompanied by works. It cannot be otherwise. Faith without works is a counterfeit faith. It's dead, in fact, James says. Faith without works is dead. So for the heart that has a realization, a knowledge of the need for God's mercy, God's grace can begin to work. And as His grace works, it produces faith. And as that faith begins to show, it produces also works. The Bible calls it works of repentance. And that is that sign of new life out of that which was dead. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't ever get that order wrong. Don't ever think that there's something that you did that somehow earned the grace of God. It was working long before you were even conscious of it. As I already said. But for us, for the humble heart, to display the beginnings of faith, the little sprouts of faith, that are indications of that new life. There's nothing to boast about. We can rejoice in both his mercy and his grace. The hymn writers put it so well, his grace shall be my glory. How God acted on my, on my position of deficit before him. That's something that we can only marvel at we realize that we had nothing to offer him. And we are indeed his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which is the sign of spiritual life, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Do you believe? Do you call yourself a believer? It better be apparent. We should see good works coming out of your life. We should see victory over death and sin. We should see a humility that is the ground of God's grace operating, not only in the life of the unbeliever and the one who is starting, but also the mature Christian, that we would grow in grace. We could have a whole other sermon just on that, growing in grace. What does that mean? Paul, as he, in the next chapter, he, he, he marvels at what's God, what God's grace was able to do in him. To think of what an enemy of the church of God, what an enemy of Christ he was. And yet, God's, not only God's mercy, but God's grace was able to begin to work in him and to produce such an amazing transformation. Should give heart to anyone here who might think that they've gone too far into sin or they've spent too long bobbing along in the course of, 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 the, of the ways of this world. God has the power to change, the power to take care of guilt, and the power 
to set you on your feet in life. May God add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. Allow me to just speak a few concluding words to the believer. Have you failed your Lord? Do you feel keenly that you have not lived the way he'd want you to be? Does Romans 7 seem a little more familiar than Romans 8 to you? Take heart in the fact that God's mercy and grace both continue to operate in your life. He's given you both. The key, at least in my opinion, and I think this is borne out by Scripture, is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He would lift you up. Humble yourself that you may experience both His healing mercy that we all need, but also his empowering grace. And then continue to grow in that grace. God doesn't expect us to live defeated lives as Christians. We are ordained unto good works, it says. That's the path God's chosen for us. So take heart. Don't let your past failures or mistakes be some kind of an excuse or a weight or an anchor. That chain has been severed. When God says, I've put your sins, I've blotted out your sins like a thick cloud. Or he says also, he's thrown our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. Those word pictures are for us. God no longer holds them against us. Sins repented of and confessed are forgotten by God. His mercy and his grace is sufficient. The only thing that will limit them is pride. The only thing. Remember that. Take heart. Take courage from that fact. And then grow in grace. May God add whatever was lacking. Amen. This concludes our service.